Galatians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Just as a reminder, Paul, Paul wrote the letter to several, this letter of Galatians to several churches that were in the, the region of Galatia where he had planted a few churches um, years prior. And, and, and then this problem arose, as I've mentioned already, that these Judaizers came in and were teaching a false gospel. And so in the first chapter, Paul spends his time showing that his authority, his office, his apostolic office, as well as his message, came directly from Christ. That he, he proclaimed from a position of authority that Christ gave him, and he gave a message, of pro, a gospel proclamation that Christ gave him. And so in today's passage, Paul shows that he was fully accepted among the other apostles as well. One of the complaints was that he was at odds with them, that there was some kind of division among the apostles, and that Paul was preaching something different than the rest of them. But instead, what Paul shows here is that they recognized he was both called and commissioned by Christ, and they never challenged his apostolic authority. They affirmed it. So two weeks ago, we, we talked about the fact that the gospel always changes believers, that there's transformation that takes place. Uh, Paul was a different person after he met Jesus Christ. Um, and his, his experience is, is not unique. Right? It's something that everyone who comes to know the triune God experiences. Everyone has changed. And so at the same time, we must realize that our tendency, as we remain in this flesh is to live contrary to the calling that we've received. We still wrestle. We still struggle. Paul continued to wrestle with the flesh. And so even though even those who have a very clear understanding of the gospel can fall into grievous sins. We'll see that in this passage as Peter's hypocrisy makes clear. We cannot question Peter's understanding of the gospel as if he, he maybe he, maybe he didn't, he, he was misunderstanding what the gospel was calling him to do. No, he, he understood it, but he was simply living out of, out of accord with it. He struggled to live in unity that the gospel provides. And so one common reason that people avoid church is the hypocrites that attend I'm sure you've heard that before if you've invited someone to come. They, they say, well, you know, Christians, they, they say one thing and they do another. Even the pastors are constantly falling. And we cannot deny this problem. But our response to it must be to point people to the truth of the gospel. It's clear that they're trusting in the wrong thing if they're looking at people's lives. And so, yes, we are, we, the gospel transforms us, but it's, it's not a, a perfect work in this life. And we'll continue to fall. We'll continue to fail. And we'll, we'll fail in significant ways, in ways that grieve the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that God is not at work in and through his gospel to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, into the image of his Son. 
And so let us ask the Lord for his help before we read this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you are doing through your word even now. As we open its contents, as we try to understand it, Lord, open us to your word. Open our hearts to it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Lord, soften our hearts that we would respond in obedience to it, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. That you would be glorified as you equip the saints this morning. Through this message, Lord, we ask that you would convict us where we've gone astray. Bring us to a place where we recognize once again the truth of the gospel and let us stand firm upon that and make that central in our lives, central in this church and and the message that we proclaim to this community. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 14. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Taking Titus along with me I went up because of a revelation and set before the, uh, and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into, sal- uh, into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they, the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, or when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Amen. This is God's holy word. We're looking at three aspects from this passage this morning. We're three aspects associated with the truth of the gospel. We'll see the truth, or preserving the truth of the gospel in verses 1 through 5. Then we'll look at proclaiming the truth of the gospel, and lastly, pretending 
the truth of the gospel. So preserving, proclaiming, and pretending the truth of the gospel. In this first verse, Paul acknowledges that he spent 14 years preaching the gospel without any apostolic supervision. He, he didn't need the other apostles' input in order for him to preach those 14 years. He didn't even see another apostle until he met Peter and James three years after his conversion. He mentioned that in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 19. And then it wasn't until after 14 years that he formally met the other apostles, the rest of them. And so it says in verses 1 and 2, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now you hear that and you, you say, well, he spent this whole first chapter talking about d- defending his apostolic authority and his message, and now he's saying, but then I saw them in order to make sure that I hadn't run in vain. Well, he's not contradicting himself here. He's not throwing out everything that he's already said in the first chapter, suggesting that he needed uh, the apostolic um, authority in order to continue to proclaim his message. That he'd already shown that, that it came directly from Christ. His office and his message came from Christ, not through any man. So he knew that he was preaching the one true gospel, but his concern was that the apostles were seen as divided. Right? That others were looking at them and saying they're divided. And they were questioning Paul's message. And probably on the other side, some were questioning the other apostles' message. Right? So it was just this, this division. So as, as they come together for unity, they're, they're recognizing the need to present themselves as, as agreeing on this gospel, on the centrality of the gospel. And so one of the examples he gives then in verse 3 is to Titus. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So this is where the Judaizers' false teaching becomes clear. The argument that they make that's presented to us in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, is that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was what they were declaring. And so they believed in Jesus, but they taught that salvation also required circumcision, this outward sign. And Paul points to the fact that, that Titus was uncircumcised, even though he was a Greek. The apostles, the other apostles, when they went to see them, they didn't require Titus to be circumcised. They received him and accepted him and even sent him along with Paul to preach to the Gentiles. So the Judaizers were wrong. Unless, unless people are willing to admit that all of the apostles are wrong on this matter. Right? They wanted to add something. The Judaizers wanted to add something to faith in order to be saved. But Paul doesn't yield. He's unwilling to back down on this. And they attacked the truth of the gospel that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And so Paul fights tooth and nail to preserve that truth. Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria during the 4th century. Uh, He was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors. 
Uh, he was bishop for 45 years, and he spent 17 years in exile during those five exiles. So he was usually exiled because he stood in opposition to Arian, to the Arian heresy, which, which taught that Jesus was a created being and therefore subordinate to God. It was a rejection of the Trinity. And so men like Athanasius are rarely the heroes of the church. Few stood with him at that time, and I think few would stand with him today. People want spiritual intimacy without that firm doctrinal stance. The truth is you cannot have spirituality without theology. And so we must defend the gospel against false teachers. A, a, a church must be bold enough to face opposition, especially the attacks upon the truth of the gospel. Maybe you've ha you haven't always thought highly of the Bible. Um, a church, you know, uh, you, maybe you've gone to church regularly all your life, but, but the Bible remains something of, of a... A, a, a door weight or a desk weight. It's something that just collects dust during the week. Maybe church is a nice place to be. There's nice folks there. But you've never really read the Bible much. Maybe you've seen how quickly churches divide over seemingly small issues. And you think, you know what, that doctrine just, it just divides people. So I don't want to get all caught up in studying. I just want to gather together and enjoy fellowship and experience that kind of blessing. Maybe you think you've heard people say this and it started to seep in in your own thinking as well, that people, we all can believe differently. You believe one way, I believe another God doesn't really care about all the various differences among us. And so if someone rejects the Trinity or hell or the person of Christ, you know, those things, we're going to always be divided over those matters. Let's, let's look past that. Let's just love. Love wins. And Paul could have responded that way. Right? I mean, he could have said, come on, we've, we know circumcision has been among us as a people I'm a Jew, I, I, it's not, it's not going to harm anyone, right? I mean, it, it hurts for a little bit, but, I mean, you get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Sure. Let's just allow people to, to, to think that that's part of salvation because otherwise we're going we're gonna to just perpetuate the division. He didn't say that, did he? No, he stood his ground without compromise because the truth of the gospel was at stake. And so preserving the truth of the gospel is critical. It's the function of the church to preserve that truth. But why do we preserve it? Why do we care so much? It's not just so that we can have the right position. It's so that we can proclaim that truth to a world that needs to hear it. And so we preserve the truth in order to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And that's what you see in this next section, verses 6 through 10. 
Paul, Paul's not denigrating the other apostles. He's already said it once, and he says it twice in verse 6, those who seemed to be influential. And then in verse 9, he even says those who seemed to be pillars. He's not denigrating those, those apostles, um, but he's responding to the Judaizers who had this inflated view of them. Right? They thought that they were above Paul, that Paul was subordinate to them, and so he is saying they seemed to be more influential or something, that they, they had a, an authority that Paul did not possess. But he says God shows no partiality. Paul was not at a disadvantage because he lacked that personal relationship with Jesus during his earthly ministry. No, instead, in verse 8, we see that God worked through the ministries of both Peter and Paul. It was God who was getting the glory for the work that was being accomplished. And so Paul was converted in the midst of persecuting the church. We looked at that a few weeks ago. It was, it was in the midst of, of, of dragging saints out of the church and bringing them, uh, taking them to jail, imprisoning them. Well, Peter has a, a similar kind of experience, a, a transformation that takes place. He, he met Jesus while a fisherman. We don't really know much about his life prior to that. We just know that as a fisherman, he, he completely changed the course of his life when he met Jesus. And Jesus called him. And then throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter oftentimes is the first to speak up embarrassingly. He, he kind of puts his foot in his mouth all the time throughout the Gospels. And then, of course, he's the one who shamefully denied Christ when he was on trial. As, as people questioned him, he denied knowing Jesus. But then after the resurrection, Peter becomes a different person. Jesus restores him. And then on the day of Pentecost, fills Peter with the Holy Spirit for the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. And he does so before a giant crowd in which 3,000 were saved. This is a man who was afraid to say he knew Jesus 50 days prior. And now he's proclaiming Jesus in such a bold fashion that it's surprising that he wasn't assassinated on the spot. So Peter's hatred has turned, or Paul's hatred had turned into love, and Peter's fear has turned into boldness. The, the gospel was not faith plus circumcision. Circumcision never saved anyone. Even the Old Testament saints were not saved by the sign of circumcision, by the covenant of circumcision. Right? It always pointed forward to the saving work of Christ. And Jesus took upon himself the curse of the covenant. That's represented by this sign. Christ was cut off from the covenant community so that he might endure the wrath of God on their behalf. In other words, salvation was, has always been by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul and Peter both exhibit a commitment in their earthly ministry, right? a commitment to evangelism that goes beyond simply living like a Christian. I've often heard people say, I'm not, I'm not one to preach at others. I prefer to 
just live my life in such a way that people see Christ through my actions. And, and I say amen to that. Do that. But that's not all we're called to do. Many refer to the quote that's oftentimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. In fact, I remember hearing this in high school and college and telling others this same thing. The quote says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. The idea is that you can preach the gospel through your actions, through your life. Now, whether, whether St. Francis Assisi said it or not, the concept is, I think, misleading. Someone responded to it by saying this, preaching the gospel without words is like feeding the homeless without bread. The gospel, the the good news, implies proclamation. It implies something that must be shared. And so evangelism is intimidating, but if we believe what we say, then avoiding it isn't an option. We don't simply say, well, that's not my gift. Some are certainly gifted in this area. I don't want to deny that. The apostles clearly had a calling and a gift. Evangelists, even, Stephen, similar example. But the early church didn't shy away from proclaiming the gospel either. In fact, when they were scattered into regions that had not heard it, they, they brought the church with them. And that, that's how the church multiplied and grew. There's a, a video online by a famous um, illusionist or, and, and comedian, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, and Penn is a committed atheist. But in the video, he, he talks about a man who came to him after a show and, and gave him some compliments about the show and then also said, I want to give you this Bible. Um, and he shared a little bit about, just told him how important his faith was to him and how much he wanted Penn to know the truth. And the experience for Penn was, was, it was very moving. Now, he didn't become a Christian, but he ended up going on YouTube and sharing this video with, with everyone saying how, how, how much that meant to him that someone would tell him that. And he said, how, he ended with this, he said, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about your faith? Now he's reflecting on the fact that you, if you believe this truth, if, you be, if this is what you believe about the gospel and the consequences of rejecting the gospel is eternal punishment, then how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? And so proclaiming the gospel is an important aspect of our faith, right? We, not, we preserve it and we proclaim it, but, but many are simply pretending. And we see that here, in fact, in Peter's own example. And it might be hard to imagine why Jews would have had a problem eating with Gentiles. We don't really really know why unless we've read something about the history there. But Jews were, were raised to despise the pagan practices of Gentiles. So it might be similar to to us eating with former Muslim radicals. There would be this natural apprehension to do that, to, to open up our home. Uh, to someone who, who we despised and who despised us. Um, 
in addition, there was different diets. There were different dietary restrictions for the Jews, and so they, they simply could not share most meals with Gentiles. There was something on the plate that, they, that would have offended them. So Peter knew that Christ had reconciled Gentiles already. Acts 10 affirms that he could not call unclean what God had made clean. So he knew that Gentiles were clean, that there was no reason for them to disassociate themselves from them. But regardless, while he was initially, had, had, he had no problem eating with the Gentiles, we see that in, in verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was sharing meals with them. But once the circumcision party arrived, Peter changed his conduct. He began acting like a hypocrite. Hypocrisy literally means to play act. To act in a hypocritical manner is to say one thing and then do another. And so Peter preached the true gospel. Paul doesn't chastise the message that Peter proclaimed. But his actions were a direct contradiction of the truth. And so the fear of man was one of Peter's besetting sins even after he had been converted, even after the Holy Spirit had come upon him in such a powerful way so that he was continuing to proclaim that truth throughout his ministry. He still struggled with the sin of the fear of man. I remember noticing that in in high school. I I remember having good friends that I, I knew from church and then attending the same high school for the first time, seeing that their faith didn't really impact at all the way they lived and the things they said and the people they hung out with. It was as if their, their faith vanished as soon as they left the church building. But I was guilty of the same thing. Put me on the soccer court, soccer field, right? and I'm doing the same stuff. So the, the Times asked several prominent writers the following question, what's wrong with the world today? And one response read this, dear sir, I am. And then he signed it, yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's a powerful statement. What's wrong with the world today? I am. And if Peter could be accused of hypocrisy along with this large company of Jewish believers, you know, maybe we're expecting too much from the average church member today. I mean, all of us are hypocrites at some point. Several years ago, an atheist challenged Christians to define a true Christian. What is a true Christian? I remember answering this along with several other Christians, and the, the point they were trying to make was that Christianity seems foolish when there's no definitive answer. Right? We, we're not all in, in agreement. And certainly opponents of early Christianity could have pointed to this disagreement between two of the most prominent figures, most prominent apostles, Paul and Peter, and they could have shown that this is an indication of the inconsistency that's inherent in Christianity. But the problem is that it ignores the fact that every 
religious and secular worldview, including atheists, contain disagreements. Scientists do not deny this. In fact, they consider contradictions to represent progress. Hypocrisy is a problem, no doubt, within the church. It affects the most prominent figures at times, but we should recognize that it's a problem for everyone. The church isn't exempt from it, but neither are atheists. And no one lives up to their own standards, even. So what about those who, who claim to reject all standards? In this postmodern world, that's, that's not all that uncommon, right? Well, I just don't believe in any set standard at all. Well, even they will contradict when their own health or livelihood is threatened. If someone claims that standards are subjective, take their wallet and see how long it takes for them to appeal to some standard of morality. It's true that all of us have standards, but it's also true that none of us can consistently abide by those standards. And so it's, it's, it should be convicting to recognize that. So t- let's tie this back together. Circumcision was, was one of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. It was the primary sign that a man and his household belonged to the church. It was a, a primary sign of his belonging to the covenant community, and it, it set the Israelites apart from the world. And these, these ceremonial laws are referred to as clean laws because violating any of them made a person unclean and therefore unfit to enter into the temple for worship. And so in other words, the worship of God depended upon doing and not doing certain things, several things. It was a long list of things. But they served a purpose that's oftentimes missed today because the clean laws showed that external washings could never make anyone truly clean. That's why you had to continually do it. And so although circumcision was the issue in Galatia, Paul recognized that a principal doctrine of Christianity was at stake. If circumcision is required, then we are not saved by grace alone. It's grace plus works. Salvation is not freedom if salvation is tied to some outward act. It's bondage. But Christ brings freedom. We saw that in in verse 4. And you see it again, actually, he, he comes back to that same idea in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Later on in verse 13 of chapter 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Adding anything to faith in order to make one acceptable to God eliminates that freedom. So Paul called these Judaizers false brothers. They were deceived. They thought they were honoring God by doing 
the right thing, but in reality, they were in bondage and they were promoting bondage. They had not experienced the freedom that was offered in Christ. And so we can consider in our, our own lives, what is it that we tend to add to Christ? What do we add to faith in Christ in order to find fulfillment or in order to find peace with God? For many, it's their obedience. And the evangelical version of the Old Testament clean laws might have to do with daily Bible reading, prayer, how good of a job we're doing at parenting, performing good works, or, or keeping, a, keeping our language pure. Now, these aren't bad things, of course not. These are good they're, they're fruit of a lively faith. But they can never replace the root, which is Christ. And so our, our list oftentimes is long as we attempt to prove that we are worthy to receive God's love. But the purpose of the clean laws was to show that you needed a Savior. And your repeated failures was once again to point you to the perfect righteousness that was offered in Christ alone. And so the laws showed that you could never make yourself clean through external obedience. And if that's true, then we must repent even of our best efforts as Christians. We must realize that cleanliness is not something we achieve by doing, but something we receive by faith. And so that's the truth of the gospel that's worth preserving and proclaiming. So join me in asking the Lord for his help in doing that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is simple to understand. It's, it's almost too good to be true. And yet we trust it is true. You've revealed it to us through the words of the apostles who received that message directly from you. And we thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. We can have a right understanding of ourselves, of our need, as we see our our need to, to come to you in repentance and faith. And we can put our trust in Christ, who offers us his righteousness who died on the cross to take our sin and our shame and our guilt and in exchange to give us his perfect record so that when we stand before you, you you do not see our sin, but you see your son's perfection. Lord, we're not worthy to receive that. We didn't earn that gift. And so we can only respond to that gospel proclamation with joyful acceptance, a resting in the work of Christ. Lord, as we respond in song and as we even celebrate the Lord's Supper and partake in this visible reminder of what Christ has done for us, may we be filled afresh with the 
a recognition of the gospel truth. May we rest in that truth and may we proclaim that truth to others this week. May we be bold in doing so, even when, it, when it's in the face of evil and oppressive opposition. Lord, we want to lift high the cross. We want to behold the wondrous mystery. So Lord, help us to do so even now. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.